Section 35 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 4 Plaimont. Plaimont, near Tortval, is one of the three angles of Guernsey. At the extremity of the Cape, there is a lofty, turfy ridge which overlooks the sea. This summit is a lonely place. It is all the more lonely because a single house is visible there. This house adds terror to the solitude. It is said to be haunted. Haunted or not, its aspect is singular. This house, built of granite and one story high, stands in the midst of the grass. It is in good condition and can be made perfectly habitable. The walls are thick and the roof is solid. Not a stone is out of position in the walls, not a tile is lacking in the roof. A brick chimney buttresses the angle of the roof. This house turns its back on the sea. The side towards the ocean is merely a blank wall. On examining the wall attentively, a bricked-up window is to be perceived. The two gables have three windows. The front, which faces inland, alone has a door and windows. The door is walled up. The two windows of the ground floor are also walled up. On the first floor, and this is what strikes one first on approaching, there are two open windows. Their opening renders them dark in broad daylight. They have no panes, not even sashes. They open upon the gloom within. One would say that they were the empty sockets from whence two eyes had been torn. There is nothing in this house. One perceives from the yawning apertures the dilapidation within. No wainscoting, no woodwork, naked stone. One fancies that one beholds a sepulchre with windows which permits the specters to gaze out. The rain undermines it on the side toward the sea. A few nettles, shaken by the breeze, caress the base of the walls. No other human habitation on all the horizon. This house is an empty thing wherein dwells silence. Nevertheless, if one halts and lays one's ear to the wall, one hears, confusedly at times, the flutter of frightened wings. Above the walled-up door, on the stone which forms the architrave, are engraved these letters, E-L-M-P-B-I-L-G, and this date, 1780. At night the melancholy moon finds entrance here. The sea surrounds this house. Its situation is magnificent, and for this reason the aspect is more gloomy. The beauty of the place becomes an enigma. Why does no human family inhabit this dwelling? The place is beautiful. The house is good. Whence comes this abandonment? These questions suggested by reverie succeed others of the reason. This field is cultivatable. Why is it not cultivated? No master. The door walled up. What then is the matter with the place? Why has man fled from it? What is going on here? If nothing is going on, why is there no one here? When all are asleep, is there some one awake? The dark squall, the wind, the birds of prey, 
the hidden beasts, unknown beings, appear to the thought and mingle with that house. To what wayfarers is it the hostelry? One pictures to oneself showers of rain and of hail beating in at the windows. The vague drippings of tempests have left their traces on the inner wall. These walled and open chambers are visited by the hurricane? Has a crime been committed here? It seems that this house, given over to gloom, must call for help at night. Does it remain silent? Do voices come from it? With whom has it dealings in this solitude? The mystery of the hours of darkness is secure here. This house disquiets one at midday. What is it at midnight? In looking at it, one looks at a secret. One asks oneself, since reverie has its logic and the possible has its tendency, what takes place at this house between the twilight of evening and the twilight of morning? Has the immense dispersion of extra-human life, a knot which stops it on that desert summit, and which forces it to descend and to become invisible? Does the scattered come to eddy here? Does the impalpable come condensed? to the extent of assuming form. Enigmas. The sacred horror lies in these stones. The gloom which broods over these forbidden chambers is more than gloom, it belongs to the unknown. After sundown the fishing boats will return, the birds will become silent, the goat-herd behind the rocks will depart with his goats, the crevices of the stones will give passage to the first glidings of reassured reptiles. The stars will begin to peep out, the breeze will blow, night will come on, those yawning windows will be there. They offer entrance to dreams, and it is by apparitions, by the faces of phantoms vaguely distinct, by masks in flashes by mysterious tumults of souls and shades, that popular belief, at once both stupid and profound, translates the somber intimacy of this dwelling with a world of darkness. The house was haunted. This word explains everything. Credulous minds have their explanation, but positive minds have theirs also. Nothing more simple, say they, than this house. It is an ancient post of observation, dating from the days of the Revolution and the Empire, and smuggling. It was built there for that purpose. The war finished, the post was abandoned. The house was not demolished because it might prove useful again. The door and the windows have been walled up on the ground floor as a protection against intruders, and so that no one could enter. The windows on the three sides facing the sea have been walled up because of the south and west winds. That is all. The ignorant and credulous insist, in the first place, that the house was not built at the time of the War of the Revolutions. It bears a date 1780, anterior to the Revolution. Next, that it was not built to serve as a military post. It bears the letters E-L-M-P-B-I-L-G which contain the double monograms of the two families, and which indicate, in accordance with usage, that the house was built for the establishment of a newly married pair. 
hence it had been inhabited. Why is it no longer so? If the door and the casements have been walled up to prevent anyone from making his way into the house, why were two windows left open? All should have been walled up, or none. Why no shutters? Why no sashes? Why no glass? Why wall up the windows on one side if they are not walled up on the other? The rain is prevented from entering on the south, but allowed to enter on the north. The credulous are wrong, no doubt, but the positive are certainly not right. The problem remains unsolved. One thing is certain, that the house bears the reputation of having been more useful than injurious to the smugglers. The exaggeration of fright deprives facts of their true proportions. Without doubt, many nocturnal phenomena among those which compose the haunting of the house might be explained by obscure and furtive visits, by brief sojourns of men who immediately re-embarked, sometimes by the precautions, sometimes by the audacity of certain suspicious gentry of trade, hiding themselves for the purpose of committing evil, and allowing themselves to be seen for the purpose of awakening fear. At that already distant period many audacious deeds were possible. The police, particularly in that little country, was not what it is today. Let us add that if the house was, as it was said, convenient for smugglers, their meetings must have had plenty of elbow-room up to a certain point, precisely because the house was superstitiously avoided. Its ghostly reputation prevented its being denounced. It is not to custom-house officials and policemen that one applies against specters. Superstitious persons make signs of the cross, not legal complaints. They see, or think they see, and hold their tongues. There exists a tacit connivance, involuntary it may be, but real, between those who inspire fear and those by whom it is experienced. The frightened are conscious that they do wrong to be frightened. They imagine that they have stumbled upon a secret. They have a fear, which is mysterious to themselves, of aggravating their position and of irritating the apparitions. This renders them discreet, and even setting aside this calculation, the instinct of credulous people is towards silence. There is numbness in fear, the terrified speak little. It seems as though horror said to them, Hush! It must be borne in mind that this goes back to the time when the Guernsey peasants believed that the mystery of the manger was repeated every year by the oxen and asses on a certain day, a period at which no one would have dared to enter a stable on Christmas night for fear of finding the animals on their knees. If local legends are to be believed, and the tales of the person whom one meets, superstition was formerly carried to the point of suspending from the walls of that house of Plémont, from nails which are still to be seen here and there, rats minus their paws, bats minus their wings, carcasses of dead beasts, toads crushed between the leaves of a Bible, sprigs of yellow lupin, strange votive offerings, hung there by impudent nocturnal passers-by, 
who thought that they had seen something, and who hoped, by these gifts, to obtain their pardon, and to conjure away the bad humor of the witches, specters, and sorcerers. There have always been people, and even some in very high positions, who have believed in abacus and witches' sabbaths. Caesar consulted Sagana, and Napoleon, Mademoiselle Lenormand. There are consciences so uneasy that they try to obtain indulgences even from the devil. May God do, and may Satan not undo, was one of the prayers of Charles V. Others are still more timorous. They even go so far as to persuade themselves that one can be in the wrong towards evil. To be irreproachable so far as the demon is concerned is one of their anxieties. Hence, religious practices turn towards this immense but unknown power of evil. It is a form of bigotry as well as any other. Crimes against the demon exist in certain diseased imaginations. It tortures eccentric casuists of ignorance to have violated the laws of the netherworld. They have scruples on the side of the darkness. To believe in the efficacy of devotion to the mysteries of the Brocken and Armuir, to imagine that one has sinned against hell, to have recourse because of chimerical infractions to chimerical penitences, to confess the truth with the spirit of a lie, to make one's mea culpa before the father of the fault, to confess in inverse sense. All this does or has existed. The reasons of trials for magic and witchcraft prove this on every page. Human dreams go as far as that. When man takes to getting frightened, he does not stop. One dreams of imaginary faults, of imaginary purifications, cleans one's conscience by the shadow of the witch's broom. At all events, if that house has secrets, that is its affair. Setting aside a few chances and exceptions, no one goes there to see it. It is left alone. It suits no one's taste to run the risk of infernal encounters. Thanks to the terror which guards it, and which wards off any one who might observe and bear testimony, it has always been easy to enter this house at night by means of a rope ladder, or even simply of the first ladder at hand, taken from the neighboring gardens. A supply of provisions and clothing would permit one to await there in perfect security, opportunity, and the proper time for a furtive embarkation. Tradition relates that forty years ago a fugitive from politics, according to some, from commerce, according to others, remained for some time concealed in the haunted house of Plaimont, whence he succeeded in embarking on a fishing boat for England. From England one easily reaches America. This same tradition affirms that provisions deposited in this house remain there untouched, Lucifer, as well as the smugglers, having an interest in getting the person who has placed them there to return. From the height on which this house was situated, one perceived in the southwest, a mile from the shore, the Hanway Rock. This reef is celebrated. It had committed all the bad actions of which a reef can be guilty. It was one of the most redoubtable assassins of the sea. 
It lay in wait for vessels at night, like a traitor. It had enlarged the cemeteries of Tortval and of La Roquin. In 1862 a lighthouse was placed on that reef. Today the Hanway Reef lights the navigation which it was wont to lead astray. The ambush holds a torch in its hand. That rock which was formerly avoided as a malefactor is now sought on the horizon as a protector and guide. Then Hanway reassures those vast nocturnal spaces which it terrified in former days. It is something like a brigand turned gendarme. There are three Hanways, Great Hanway, Little Hanway, and La Mauve, the Gull. It is on Little Hanway that the red light beacon stands today. This reef forms a part of a group of points, some of them submarine, some projecting from the sea. It towers above them. It has, like a fortress, its outworks. On the side of the high seas, a cordon of thirteen rocks. On the north, two breakwaters, the haute Fourquille, the Aguillon, and the Sandbank, the Héroué. On the south, three rocks, Cat Rock, Pierced Rock, and Roc Herpin, besides two sandbanks, the South Bou and the Bou du Monet, and besides, in front of Plainmont, level with the surface of the water, the Tas de Poix d'Aval, note, the heap of peas down the stream. It is difficult but not impossible for a swimmer to swim across the strait from the Hanways to Plainmont. It will be remembered that this was one of Sieur Clubin's feats. The swimmer who knows these shoals has two points where he can rest, round rock, and, further on, a little to the left, in an oblique line, the red rock. End of chapter 4. Plainmont.